kindergarten and first grade. I run graphics. Sing on worship team. We are the kids because I am Redemption Church. Well, hello everybody. How are we doing today? I uh, I still see some heads down uh, on their phones right now. Is what I see. It's like, oh, it's not downloading fast enough. Ah. So what I'm going to do right now is I'm going to check in because I can. Got to make sure I'm being responsible. And I can leave a message for Scott, so I'm going to tell him he's a booger. All right, so, because I love him so much. All right, so yes, I am here. I am checked in. That is happy. So uh, hopefully you are checked in too. This is just another way that hopefully we're kind of moving the ball forward a little bit, doing things a little different, and uh, hopefully in that too, creating a little bit better uh, connection. Right, we know that technology is increasingly making our lives both simple and complicated. But hopefully we can merge those together and make it simple in the way that we try to interact with you. Uh, let you know what's going on at Redemption Church. And you can let us as leaders know what's going on in your life and how we can pray for you, that kind of thing. So that's important to us. But there's still some things that are analog around here. And this is one of them right here, uh, the IMRC. This is the last Sunday we're going to be pushing this particular card. Uh, but we want to encourage every single one of you, if... You're yet to serve at Redemption Church in some capacity. This may be for you because we have needs both in children's ministry and in worship ministry. And what we're asking is just for a person to commit to six months, check off one of those boxes, say, hey, I'm willing for six months to just try it out, see if serving in this area is for me. And uh, that way you can kind of explore that. You can be a a blessing and a benefit uh, to the people here at Redemption Church as well. That would be great for you to do that. And uh, again, you can just sort of experiment with how God has built you and maybe what God has for you to do. Because again, what the church is about is less just, hey, I come and I spectate. It really is about contribution. It's about using our gifting and using our abilities and using our heart as we come together to serve one another in oneness. That is the heart of what the church is about, at least one of the things that the church does. And so we would love to see really everybody that calls redemption their home to serve in some corner, some capacity, in some way. And what you find when you serve is it's not just that you're giving, but you do legitimately receive in return. You are blessed and built up and encouraged in the process of that. So again, I am RC because the church is its people. And so that is something that is important to us. Now, another thing that is important to us as a church, something that we actually shared with you a couple of weeks ago, is that uh, our, our, our future is looking big and it's looking bright and it's looking exciting because we have uh, come up with one of these, right? And, and we are. We are very excited about this prospect, right? And, and so we kind of gave the big picture of it. And, and what we shared in this is that we wanted to refer to this concept as the Redemption Church Sanctuary. Not a sanctuary for people, but really a sanctuary for God's word and God's gospel. A, a place of centrality where God's people join and they join together in their oneness to be equipped and encouraged and challenged and inspired and, and trained up in the word of God. So that they can go out and proclaim gospel and serve one another and serve our city and all those things that we do. And so we gave some generalities about that a, a couple of weeks ago. And then last week we had the women's retreat. How many women went to the women's retreat last week? Good number of women. That was awesome. So we kind of let last week go and, and we thought we'd come back to things this week as far as how we're going to go about this particular uh, enterprise. What it means for redemption to go from a church without walls to a church with walls, yet still having the heart without walls. That's really what we're hoping to do in all of this. And so, uh, of course, this is the, the current Union Bank building uh, as it stands, and, and, and we have plans for the future and everything else. I want to walk through, though, uh, just real quick before I, I get into God's Word this morning, uh, the waypoints and how we want to get there. Now, one of the things we were wrestling with is how can we communicate this in a visual sort of way? And we look at the bank building, and we always notice that clock and that particular kind of angle of the the roof and so he said well we're going to go ahead and make a symbol that kind of fits that that makes sense for us right and and so we're just taking the clock and putting on our bug because we like our bug here we like a little rc thing and everything else and so from that we said this is going to become the iconic thing that we will see as we begin to move toward a future in that space now the first waypoint we have is not that we're going to be meeting down there on Sunday mornings uh, in six months. I mean, if, if there was somebody that had uh, just unique uh, access to a lot of funds and in generosity said, hey, let's make this thing happen fast, we would make it happen fast. We know the realities of life are not necessarily that way. 
And so we want to approach this in a scaled type of fashion that's realistic and at the same time as swift as we can possibly make it. So we wanted to set up again some tangible markers of where we're trying to get in different periods of time. So for example, the first marker is that we would like to be able to raise within the next eight weeks uh, $30,000. And what this does is it sets up that space as the hub. If you're not familiar with the hub, that's our midweek space. As our offices, uh, and, and to convert the bank into a space that's similar to what we use the hub for, we estimate it's going to be about $30,000 for those improvements, to have all the electrical checked out. We have to have some HVAC inspection, things like that as well. But this is roughly the number it's going to take to do that. Now, now let me give you a sense of perspective. Some people would say, man, why are we going to do the hub? I mean, like, you know, is, is it that important? Uh, well, it is important not only to ministry, but in the last five years since we've started Redemption, we have spent about $300,000 in rent on the hub. So we look at that and go, you know what, to even be using this as the hub space, at least it's an investment into the space that's eventually going to be what we use for everything. It's a much better expenditure of money to be using it for the hub now as opposed to continue to lease something for the next few years and and do it that way. So our first waypoint, we want to raise $30,000 within the next eight weeks so that we can outfit the space for the hub. The next waypoint or goal that we have is to raise $100,000, and we would love to be able to do that in the next six months. And the heart behind that is that we know, whether we like it or not, that we need architects who will design this thing well, and that costs money, right? It just does. Whether we like it or not, that's part of where money gets spent. And so for us to have a good, solid picture of what this would look like, what it would be, uh, we want to seek to raise that amount of money in the next six months. Now, I'm going to say between us right now, uh, there's always little anomalies. And so this is just a part of the transparency. There's always anomalies that can happen in here. For example, remember when I said a couple of weeks ago, loose lips sink ships? And there's other things we would love to see happen if they can happen. And we're wanting to see those things happen. That thing is this thing to the south of the property. And I don't want to say more, but parking's nice. And so... Um, this could shift around a little bit if that avails itself. And, and we're working on that. We're asking you still to kind of keep that to yourselves. We're working on that, and, and we're seeing how that's going to materialize. But for now, we go, this is a waypoint that we are shooting for. The next waypoint then we'd be shooting for is to raise $900,000 within three years, right? And, and, and that's a lofty sum. That's, that's a lot of money per year for the next three years, and we know that. And we know that some of us go, man, I I can make hardly any contribution to that. And there may be others that say, God has blessed me in such a way that I can give more to that. Uh, We're just praying that you are praying, God, what do you want me to do and how do you want me to do that? Because our heart is that God would be leading in this. We don't want to be so smart and have so much ingenuity that we solve this on our own. We want God to lead his people, guide his people, compel his people to what they do. And if God has equipped you or gifted you in such a way that you can do big things, Praise God. If God has built you and equipped you, equipped you so you can do little things, praise God. Pray to God, though, and say, God, how can I be a part of what you're doing? If we get to this number within that amount of time, that gives us the ability to then move towards something conceptually like this, right? Um, now, there's some that say, why don't we just go get a loan as fast as possible and just do it tomorrow? And then everybody knows that's a bad idea, right? So we want to do this in a way that is wise and prudent and is saving the money as we go, or at least saving a decent amount so as we go into it, we're not just saddling ourselves with reckless and ridiculous debt that makes ministry impossible and everybody's stressed and every week you're waiting for the pastor to ask for money. We don't want to do that. Another thing we don't want to do as a church is to have one of those traditional uh, campaigns where we are carpet bombing you every week with come to a dessert so you can learn more about how we can have your money. We, We don't we don't want to do that. And maybe you've been a part of that before, right? And there's just this heavy, heavy push all the time. We're just putting it out there and we're praying. We're saying, hey, here's what we want you to be aware of. These are the targets we're trying to hit. We want to stay in Duval. We want to do the space. And we're going to let God lead that. That's, that is so much the heart behind what we're seeking to do. Now, to track this, some churches do like thermometers, right? Like the great thermometer. I'm like, we're not doing a thermometer. Wait, I hear, yeah, uh, I guess we are doing a thermometer. Um, so, uh, now, we're not doing a thermometer, but we're kind of kind of doing a thermometer because people like to know how the progress is going, right? So we said, for example, we wanted to raise $25,000 or $30,000, rather, for the hub in the next eight weeks. And so that's kind of the first goal. When we get to that goal, uh, then we'll do something like that. 
the R would turn red because we can do that, right? Um, it was, all right, then the next goal is to raise 100000 in six months. And then we would turn the C up there like that. We say, all right, we hit the 100000 And then <clears throat> as we begin to go after that 900000 we'll just begin to fill in the letters. We had 100000 the S, 200000 the A, 200000 the N, and so on. And what we're going for is kaboom, right? We're going for that. We're, when we get to that final 900000 number, then we can move on this project. That, that is our heart. And so, uh, you know, again, my <clears throat> prayer is that God would show up big. My prayer is that God would lay this on his people's heart. I mean, I think about that in the Old Testament. It's just a parallel. It's not a command. But I think about when, when God's people were stirred by God and God was, you know, building his temple or on the move and, and they couldn't help but just buy in and, and be a part of it. And, and that's my prayer. I don't want to use pressure tactics and all that. That's not my heart. That's not my thing. I'm not that guy. Uh, I, I, if anything, I just pray that God will compel us to the things that he wants to do. And if this is what he wants us to do, then again, this is going to be a thing he is placing on our hearts so that we can see this happen. Uh, and I think it would be exciting to see, you know, this occur down on 203, right on Main Street, all of that to happen, to be a sanctuary for God's word and God's gospel. And so, again, our ultimate goal really is about $300 million. I mean, this is what this project is going to be at this point. This is, and I, I would call it a conservative estimate, right? So I think some churches, um, you know, is that, is, oh, yeah, yeah, it's the oh, yeah goal. Be, oh, yeah, if it's paid off, oh, yeah, um, right? So what was that? Oh, $300 million. See, that's a Freudian slip, all right? So I'm, I'm wanting to put in the pool, all right? So um, some churches have baptismal. We want an Olympic pool. We want people to be able to cannonball into their baptism, all right? So um, I think I was seeing about 300,000 said 300 million. Yeah, that's where it was. All right, so this is, this is sort of the big picture, though. And so... Again, uh, on a monthly basis, we'll give you an update. Here's where, where the kind of resources are up to date. Kind of here's what we're doing and that kind of thing. So again, it's not going to be some big heavy push all the time. That's not what we want to do. Uh, but we want to have you be informed. And we want you to be praying about, God, uh, what do you want me to do? And how do you want me to do that? And how do you want me to go about the business of uh, your mission and your kingdom in this valley? Because that was the heart. I mean, when originally we were looking at space, we really didn't think we could stay in Duval. It was untenable to build and everything else. And so the leaders started looking outside of Duval. And the people came back and said, no, no, no. We don't want to leave Duval. Whatever we need to do to stay in Duval, we want to stay in Duval. And so, by God's grace, this was something that availed itself for us to be able to stay in Duval, have a base camp or a forward operating place in which the gospel and the Bible can be uh, promoted and uh, preached and equipping God's people with the word so that they can go out and be missionaries to their community. And so this is our heart right here. And so right now, I'm going to pray for our morning. I'm going to pray for uh, this endeavor. Again, we just want to keep you all informed. And uh, right now, I'm just saying, hey, man. Ask God, God, what do you want me to do in, in line with this? What is it you're calling me to, and what have you built me for? So let's go ahead and pray, and then we're going to get right into God's word. Jesus, I thank you for, again, <clears throat> your, your church, and I thank you for your word, and I thank you, uh, even in my own life, how much I, I've done foolish things, and then your word has confronted me, and not just confronted me as information, but has this ability to pry into the heart, into the superstructure of a soul, and, and reveal what's really going on, and from that to confront, from that to bring to repentance, from that to shape life and lifestyle and perspective, and then from that to be a different person. And, and so I look at the power of the word, and all the more why it makes sense that what you've laid on our heart is a sanctuary for your word and a sanctuary for your gospel, a place in which it is upheld and protected and instructed, and, and, and then from that you are glorified because we see you as you are, as you have proclaimed yourself to be. I, I pray that that is really always going to be the guiding heart behind us. It's not just convenience, it's not just space, it's not just bragging rights. It is a place that is designed to make much of you as it makes much of your word. And so continue to guide us in that. And I pray this morning, even as we're looking at your word and, and what the church is and the mission and vision of your church, that uh, we will uh, be attentive to your word as your people, that we wouldn't just say it's holy and then it collects a lot of dust, but rather we would say it's wholly necessary for my life and we take it in all the time because we're eager to see you as you are. And so I pray that you continue to teach us and instruct us and give us passion. We ask these things in your good and perfect name. Amen. So uh, I have my backpack up here. Um, 
Here's what I love about this. This this was the first thing I brought up with me on the very first Sunday of Redemption Church. And next Sunday is our fifth year anniversary as a church. It is our fifth birthday. We're going to be doing different things on our fifth birthday, which will be uh, a lot of fun. Uh, So that's going to be very cool. But what that means is, is that five years ago today, uh, I left church knowing that I was somehow going to be a part of planting a church. That's what I knew that day. I knew the day I left church, five years ago today, I was going to be planting something, right? Beyond that, I didn't know what it was going to be, how it was going to be, where it was going to be. All of those things were were just unknowns, right? So left church that Sunday, kind of took a deep breath, and that's really when I began to pray, God, what would you want this thing to look like? It didn't even have a name at that point. It didn't have a name till five years ago tomorrow, right? So it was just, what is it supposed to be? And so I just started to take inventory. And the first thing I knew for sure is that whatever it was going to be, it was going to be about Jesus. I was certain of that. I was, I was convinced of that. We were going to be more concerned with what Jesus thinks than what people think. We were going to be more absorbed with the idea that what we do must honor him, even if it means we can't be the biggest church, the best church, the most well-known church. We didn't want it to be so about people that we kind of contorted Jesus to be the Jesus that people like. I knew it had to be about Jesus, even if we as people will sometimes struggle with the Jesus that it's all about. So what I knew positively is it needed to be all about Jesus. The other thing I knew is that it would be broke and buildingless, right? I knew it was going to be that. And, and, and so instantly you're like, why would it be all about Jesus? But it has no money, it has no building. That is very compelling in a good way. It's very compelling to draw you back to your first point. Okay, then, Jesus, you have to do it. Now, honestly, that afternoon, what I did not think or believe is that the next Sunday we would have our first service. I didn't think that. I thought it would take a month before we had a space. I thought it would take a long time before we ever had any of the infrastructure. I, 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 I just didn't think that was going to happen, at least in my humanness. But, again, if it's all about Jesus, Jesus, if you want it, you have to show up really big. You have to prove that you're doing this thing, whatever it's going to be called, Right? And so that was kind of the second thing I knew. The third thing, late that night, I sat down with a pad of paper and a pencil. And I'm like, what are the values of this place going to be? And the values then became embodied in this idea of a backpack. We weren't going to have a building, so we were going to be backpackers, right? We weren't going to have structures. We were going to be tenters. We were going to be nomadic for a while. I knew we are going to be nomadic. So in the nomadic spirit, a church without walls, what was going to be the things that capture us as an iconic thing? And, and so the, the things were very simple. It was going to be about God's word. That was the first thing. So the, the Bible goes in the backpack. It's right there front and center, easy to grab. We're going to be a church about the word. The next thing I knew is that we had to be a church that was about community. So the rope was going to tether us together. Uh, we, we were starting this thing as, as a band of nomads strung together. And therefore, our, our connection, our fellowship, uh, our, our sense of group and regroup, that needed to be important to us in the process of things. And so the rope symbolized that idea of our togetherness and tying off to one another. The third thing was uh, the great super soaker. Because that's the gospel. We're storming hell, right? We need something to storm hell with. So gospel. We're taking on the gates of hell. We're taking on the flames of hell. We knew that we were going to be missional theologians. And so with Bible and gospel and tethered off, this was going to be our purpose. And all of that was to advance the purposes of the kingdom. So we threw a shovel in the backpack, right? We're going to plant ministries and plant churches and plant missionaries. And we want to be about that planting aspect in any number of ways. Maybe it's just planting an individual in some kind of unique ministry in the community. All the way to planting church planters in places like Indonesia or Africa. Or Micronesia, places where we have some of our church planters. And so this really became iconic for us. And so I knew that these four values would matter. And then the last thing that I knew is that it would take a long time. I I knew that uh, if we survived the first three years, that would be awesome. Because most church plants don't survive their first three years. And so I'm like, if we can make it through three years, that's, that's going to be really, really cool. And if we make it through three years, it's going to take about another seven years after that to be truly a stable, healthy, thriving church with legs for a long haul. And so we're in year five this week. So that teaches us that we still have 
room to grow and places to go and things to do and responsibilities to achieve and kind of dispositions to, to, to own as our own personal responsibility. We're an incomplete church. By, by God's grace, though, I, I look and I go, this is, what, this is really, this is the best church I've ever been in in my life. And I don't say that because I'm supposed to stand up there and say that. I, I say that because it's legitimate. I, I've only been in a handful of churches over 20 plus years. And all of those churches were associated with one another until I came here. And so it was familiar, and I knew the personalities and everything else. And, and here it was like being thrust into a whole different world. And yet in that, it's like God has broken me down. And there's things in this process over the last nine years almost that I've been here where, where God has beat some stupid out of me and reminded me of some things that were critical and brought me back to fundamentals that make much of him more than try to feed my ego. All of that has happened over that course of time. And, and probably from all of that, what it makes me do as a person is then just gravitate to these values. That I want to make sure that these values are always near and dear to our heart. That everything is about Jesus. And because it's about Jesus, we love his word. We love his gospel. We love his church and community within that church. And we love what he's doing with his kingdom as he advances it and plants other outposts to advance the purpose, cause, message, and glory of his kingdom. That, that is the heart of redemption church and so as we're going through this series on the church is we're doing that not just from the high orbit of what the new testament says about the church but how that translates into the type of church the redemption is wired to be that's the heart behind all of this and so this is always going to be in my mind the core values the core spirit why we identify with the backpack even one day if we have a building that we still see ourselves as backpackers and nomads for Jesus, where Jesus and first is first and foremost in what we do. Now, how we grounded that in this current series is last week. Well, last week's last Sunday was just all about how Jesus has taken personal possession of his church. That's why you say it's all about Jesus. The church is all about Jesus, right? So Jesus comes into the world for the sake of his church. He says he's going to build his church. He dies for his church. He rescues his church. He fills his church with his spirit. He guides his church by his word because he's doing that as a husband to his bride, the church. He says, man, I'm going to nurture you, nurture you, and I'm going to bless you and build you and encourage you and shape you and bring you on to completion. I'm going to make you a holy people, right? So it's his church, and we love the fact that the New Testament is so robust with the message that it's his church. And so that was last week. It's, it's his church. It's not my church or the elders' church. In some ways, while we are all to take ownership of the church, we, we do so in light of the fact that Jesus has taken ownership of us. That's why we do what we do, right? So last week, it's Jesus' personal possession, the church. Today is why we make much of the book, right? Why it's central in the values that we hold. And, and when I say that, I want us to understand that this book right here, when, when the church is to be uh, focused and fixated on the book, it's not simply because our job is to teach it or our job is to obey it as Christians, though that is completely true, and I will affirm that even later this morning. But there's a deeper thing when it comes to the church and its relationship to the word, and that is the fact that the church is a sentinel of the truth. We're a sentinel of the truth. Now, some of you are familiar with that word sentinel, right? So if you like comic books or Comic-Con or you like college football, you know the word, a sentinel, right? But it's this old, I think it's actually a French, old French word that means vigilance. And a sentinel was a guard or a watchman over some location or item or even at times a secret or a message. And I would say that this idea of a sentinel really fulfills the calling of the church when it comes to the Bible. We're called to read it, we're called to preach it, we're called to teach it, we're called to obey it, but we're also called to be a custodian of the canon. We're a knight of the word, we're a sentinel of the scriptures. Uh, that is also what the New Testament instructs us to do. In fact, I want you to open right now to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Or you can just go to many of your Bible labs now. Um, and open uh, or point or click or tap to 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. Now, this particular little section here in 1 Timothy uh, is the bullseye of 
both First and Second Timothy, right? When you read like commentators or scholars, they'll say, this is Paul's epicenter in these two particular letters to his young apprentice, Timothy, and it's the center for us today. Now, to understand how it's the center, I'm just going to give you a real quick review. First uh, Timothy chapter 1, Paul says... Um, Jesus came for sinners. He gives a list of the different sins that people struggle with, why the law points out our sin, and that Jesus came to rescue sinners. So chapter 1 says, man, man, the world is a broken place. And people are broken people, and we go our own way, do our own thing, have our own values, desire our own vibe, make ourselves our own gods a lot of times, and make our own rules and standards and systems. But Jesus came to save sinners from themselves. Chapter 1. Then he goes into chapter 2 and says, and, and sometimes that means dwelling in a culture that is led by sinners. And therefore we pray for them. We pray for kings and people in authority and powers that we might live a peaceable life. And so chapter 1 is, man, the world is sinful. Chapter 2 is pray for the sinful world that plays out in cultural models. Then he goes a little further into chapter 2 and says, not just praying for culture, but then also as the church we have a responsibility. Men, be like this in the church. Women, be like this in the church. So the world is sinful. Culture is broken. The church has a responsibility to holiness and godly in the context of a sinful culture and broken world, right? So do all of that. Then he gets into chapter 3 and says part of that means being led by godly elders and godly deacons and making sure that's a part of the fabric of the church. So a church is healthy, right? That's the context. So he says, man, all of this, though, is for a lofty responsibility. In a broken world, in a sinful culture, with a church that's always refining, under leaders that are hopefully godly, here's what the church is meant to do. He says in verse 14, Timothy, I hope to come to you soon. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. This was a verse he used a couple of weeks ago when we started talking about the building. Right? We're like, this is the essence of the church. Not the essence of a physical building, but it's the essence of the church. And when I say this, I want to first highlight the fact that in the original language, right? I know we're not a bunch of Greek readers here. But the Bible was written, the New Testament, in Greek. And in the original Greek language, when it talks about the household of God or the church of the living God, it doesn't have the definite article, the, there. So what that means is that Paul is writing to Timothy and he's saying, Timothy, this is the job of every local church. Not just generically, this universal thing called the church is to be a pillar and buttress of the church. Truth, he's saying every local church is a household of God. Every local church is a church of God. And as that, every local church has a responsibility to the word of God, right? To the truth. And oddly, because of this vision of a pillar here, what it's saying is that the church is not simply built on the truth, that's true enough, but it's also a possessing or a protective agent, preserving even, a preserving agent of the truth. So the church is built on the truth, but then also in a dualistic, strange way, we preserve, we care for. We protect, we are custodians of the truth. That's why we preach, and that's why we push, and that's why we promote the word of God. That's why we want to pass it along to others. We want to make sure that's all going on, right? But it's not just in the entity of the church. It's also with all of us as individuals, right? It's as elders that are coming together. And, 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 and so we all have a responsibility to that. But again, the entity, also a local church, has that responsibility. And it has that responsibility. Just rewind the context. A church has a responsibility to be a, a custodian of the canon uh, under elders and in a congregation in a fallen culture in a sinful world, right? All of that is strung together. This is the epicenter of a, of a progression, which means there's always going to be some outside thing. That applies pressure to that being a custodian. The, the reason the church is called to protect or called to guard or called to be a sentinel is not because the environment is easy and peaceful and everybody loves the Bible and they all get along and they all think it's the good book. No, it's because there's always going to be pressure and there's always going to be persecution. There's always going to be challenge. And so all the more a church must be committed. Committed to the idea that says we must guard this. And cherish this with 
everything that we can. That's why it calls it a buttress. In Greek, that just means protector or protection, right? That's our guardianship. And when it says pillar here, um, part of what this is implying is that our lives, right? Because the church is made up of people under leaders in a difficult culture in a sinful world, right? So part of this idea of the pillars that we are to uh, be is that we as individuals are to display the truthfulness of the truth, right? So, so our interaction with this, our taking it seriously, is to, to model that, um, yeah, the word of God is true, and you can see it in my life. It's proof. That's part of being a pillar. That's part of being the defense. The defense is, uh, I believe it, therefore I live it. And that settles it. I'll show you these bumper stickers that say, uh, it says it, that settles it. Well, if we don't live it, it doesn't settle it. And sometimes if we don't live it, it obscures it. If we don't live it, it confuses it for others that are looking with a critical eye, wanting to see if it's true. And so when Paul's writing to Timothy, he's saying a lot in that text. He's saying, yes, a local church protects and a local church lives it out. A local church demonstrates the truthfulness of the truth. We obey it and then we guard it. And, you know, this has always been the way it has been for the church. This goes back to um, even why we talk about this idea of sanctuary, why Redemption Church wants a sanctuary not for people, but a sanctuary for the word and for the gospel. When you go and look at the early church, for like the first hundred years, they, they just met in houses. That's what they did. But when you pass into the second century, Christians started doing something really, really strange. They started buying houses and gutting them. Right? Uh, kind of toward the end of the second century, in fact. They started buying houses and they would gut them. And the purpose was they wanted a place where all of the Christians of a community could gather together. And in that space, they could learn of the manuscripts that are being circulated. They could learn of the Bible that they had at that point, which was the Old Testament. They could be instructed in the context of God's truth so that not only would it be guarded and passed along, but it would be properly taught so people could live it. They could buttress and be pillars of truth right instruction in passed along you know kind of driven down into people right uh but then from that they could go out and they could live it and demonstrate the truthfulness of the word of god that was the intention behind why they would buy houses and gut them it was houses of instruction and then sometimes roman empire would come in and just confiscate the house and the christians would all have to scatter but what their agenda was was when can we buy another house and we can gut it and we can Create a space for the word. We want to create a space where all can gather under the word together. That was their, their heart. Right? And so, again, this is a part of that idea of sentinel and sanctuary and protection and living it and being grounded in it. That is, again, why we as a church care so much about making sure that we make much of the Bible. Now, how do we guard it? Why do we have to guard it, right? Well... As Paul is writing to Timothy, and we're just walking through 1st and 2nd Timothy, we will see in chapter 6 of 1st Timothy that we must guard the truth from the seduction of error. Paul concludes his letter to Timothy in chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. He says, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit. Guard the deposit entrusted to you. Um, For us in the 21st century, this is the deposit. Right Now, for Timothy in the first century, uh, the deposit would have been the Old Testament. The deposit would have been the gospel as then revealed throughout the context of the different letters that were beginning to circulate. Right, That was the deposit for them. The teaching of the apostles, the belief of the church. Guard the deposit, Timothy. Right, He says, avoid irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved away from the faith. You have to guard this, man, because you know what? There's always going to be different voices out there saying different things, always trying to steer people away. For some, it's irreverent babble. It's just going to be silly psychology or it's going to be silly, uh, you know, kind of sociology that says, no, 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 no. The Bible doesn't count today because here's what we've learned in some think tank in Scandinavia. It doesn't count anymore. And if it isn't irreverent babble, it's going to be contradictions that claim to be knowledge. And so it's going to be weird philosophies or even weird theologies that undermine the word of god and and, and so we we all know we experience it we, we see things like 
when sympathy overrides scripture. And that's very easy today. And it's very hard, I think, even for us as Christians, because we're called to sympathy. We're called to mercy. We're called to love. We're called to care. We're called to embrace. We're called to go to the weak and the broken and the hurting and the hungry and the naked and the imprisoned. And so it's very hard sometimes because we have all of this calling to invest into people who are down and out and we're to be friends of sinners. But it's hard because sometimes we're like, our sympathy can override scripture. And we're tempted to that. And we don't want to be told that we're not sympathetic and we're mean and we're hateful and we're cruel and we're judgmental. So we struggle with that because, again, sometimes we allow sympathy to override scripture. Or sometimes we find that uh, relativity is just preferred over revelation, right? It's just, you know, who can really know for sure? And so that's always going to be a challenge or a threat. Sometimes what works is preferred over what is true. Because again, what is true sometimes takes real sacrifice and, you know, takes real fortitude and you have to be okay with losing, but what works is practical. And so we struggle with some of those things. And then there's the inverse of this, right? So one side of how we can be drawn away into irreverent or silly or foolish or broken things is just, again, we have this propensity to sin on the side of levity. But the other side is we have the propensity to react to all of that. And to become kind of legalistic and to become harsh and to become a little bit more cruel. And so we replace love with a kind of legality about things. Or uh, rules are more important than true, humble righteousness. And, and, And both were concerns for Paul to Timothy. Right? I want you to understand that. Timothy's context, especially as we get into 2 Timothy, we'll explain it more. But Timothy's context wasn't as simple as everybody just wants to act like a bunch of silly frat boys first week of college being just numbskulls. That wasn't necessarily always Timothy's problem. Timothy's problem in his church was also at times people wanted to be very rule-laden and very rule-based. And they wanted to be very kind of just super, super tight on everything. And Paul's like, that is just as much a doctrine of demons as anything else. And so there's always this challenge that comes out in this that we must then all the more work to guard the deposit. To love the word of God but not fall into the extremes that sometimes happen when we're lovers of the word of God. Now, I don't think there's any extreme in, you can't extremely obey the Bible. You can extremely go beyond the Bible and make up a bunch of other rules. You can't extremely obey the Bible. But sometimes in our zeal, The risk is we go beyond it. Or in our timidity, we we step away from it. And and, and so Paul is telling Timothy, no, 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 you got to guard the church. You got to guard the deposit. You have to stay in that center with these things, right? You have to guard it and its content objectively. But then there's another component in how we guard It's in 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Second letter to Timothy. Close out the first letter. Guard the deposit because people are going to do things that risk it recklessly. So guard the deposit. Then he gets to 2 Timothy chapter 1, and he's going to say this again. Guard the deposit. He just has a different context to it. He says in verse 13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you've heard from me in faith and love, in faith and love that are in Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, guard the deposit, the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. Now again, keep the progression in mind. Timothy lives in a fallen world. Chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, right? The world is sinful. Jesus came to save sinners. In that, culture is broken. You realize that. Churches are inside culture. Churches have challenge. So people need to act like the church as the church. Leaders need to act like the church as the church. Because the church is the guardian of the truth. And as the guardian of the truth, you guard the deposit and its objective message. But then here he's saying, you also guard the deposit by following it. Not just guarding its information that this is the Holy Bible, but guarding it in such a way that you live holy because it is the Holy Bible. If we don't live holy, people are going to look at the Bible and say, is it holy? Because if you're not holy, how can it be holy? 
And so this is Paul's message to Timothy here. At the end of the first letter, he says, guard its, uh, its objective message. In 2 Timothy, guard it by doing it. Guard it by living it. Guard it by contending to see it applied in your life. In fact, I want you to notice right there when he says, follow the pattern. It's an architectural phrase. Paul, Paul took from culture all the time. Like, all the time. He was constantly borrowing images from culture. He was a contextualizer. And so, what he was saying is what, what architects would have their students do. An architect would draw a plan, and to train their student, the student would trace over the original architect's plan. They would follow the pattern. And that's how they began to learn to be an architect. So, what Paul is saying, Timothy, why don't you keep tracing over the pattern of sound words that have been instructed to you. I want you to keep tracing over the pattern of the truth. Trace over the pattern of the Bible. Trace over the pattern of what it means to obey and the spirit in which you do that. Keep tracing, tracing, tracing. In other words, keep doing it and learning it. Keep playing by the rules of the lines. Live the design. If there was a way I would describe what he's saying kind of in the flow of all of this, is that our integrity reinforces the scripture's integrity. That doesn't mean that the scripture's integrity is needful of our integrity, right? It has integrity outside of us. But if we're honest, if we're living in a world in which Jesus came to save sinners, in a culture that is a broken culture, in which the church is embedded as the guardian of truth, it has to keep it both objectively and subjectively. In other words, we display that this book has the integrity it has because it shapes the integrity that we have. And if we don't embody the integrity of the book, again, then people will say, well, is there then integrity with the book? This is why the guardianship of the church is more than just, hey, if we have a building and the Bible's in there, good enough. Or as long as we say it's the inspired word of God, good enough. We have to live as though we believe it's the inspired word of God. And that's what's good enough. Because if we're not holy, how are people going to think it's a holy Bible? Now, I get it. I, none of us are perfect. I'm not claiming that. I, I, I'll, I'll, it seems like every other Sunday I'm up here telling you my dirt. Right? I mean, I, like, I'm not trying to suddenly set us all up for mammoth failure. At the same time, I do think it's healthy for us to have a burden that says, Jesus, help me to be more today uh, a person that is reliant on you than I was yesterday. That we, we at least have that thing in us that says, I want to be more of what the gospel has saved me to be. Like, I, I, I want to prove that it's true and real and it changes lives. I'm going to do what it says because I believe there's blessing and I believe it's right and I believe, believe God shows up big when I do what it says even when I don't want to do what it says. I mean, like, that would be our burden as a church. That, that would be my burden on the daily affairs of life, right? But I want us to notice the kind of holiness that is being instructed here. This following of the pattern. It says it's in faith. And here he's not talking about the objective faith because the posit is that. He's talking about subjective, right? That we would uh, obey the word, that we would follow the pattern of the word, trusting God that what he says about this is true. That again, there really is blessing for obedience. We also do it in love. Not in pride. Not in burden, not critical of others as we do it. It's easy to do that, right? I, I find the more sometimes people get really Bible-focused, the more they sort of lose graciousness. That's, that's contrary to what the Bible is about. So we do it in faith, we do it in love. Of course, in this, we do it in Christ. And can I tell you, it's just my personal thing. Um, well, that's not my personal thing. I'm going to quote Jesus. It's his thing. I'm just borrowing a part of it. Um, but uh, my personal experience is when I try to be a Bible doer, but I'm not doing it truly in Christ, I'm kind of a jerk. I'm a jerk. I might, I might be doing the verses, and, and I might uh, be following the commands, but I'm, I'm not an encouragement, and I'm not always kind or gracious, and, and, and my outlook starts to look at the world around me and become a little bit more judgmental than broken for them and everything else. Um, and, and, and part of that, I think, is not just simply because it's easy to become judgmental, uh, but I think the other part of it is when I'm doing this, but I'm not doing it in the spirit of Jesus, do this in me, then it's just me. And when it's just me, I'm working harder, and when I work harder, I become a jerk. 
right? I just become a jerk when I have more on my plate. And if, if I'm trying to really honor the word of God, that's a lot on your plate, right? Right now I got to love my enemies, those jerkwads, fine, whatever, I won't say anything mean, you know? Like, that's the problem. I'm working too hard. But if it's in Christ, I can't help but think about Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, for I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul, for my burden is easy, my load is light. Like, I listen to that, and I go, man, when I do it in Jesus, and then I start to do the word, it's not a burden, I'm not tired, I'm not having to work extra hard. No, it's a delight, it's a joy, it's a sense of peace, the burden is light, I'm learning from the one who is lowly, and therefore, as I do this, I have a lowly heart, not a haughty heart right and so in christ when paul's writing these words are such precision in faith in love in christ every single one of these oozes with meaning for him and then he says do this by the holy spirit not just by being dedicated in our own strength it's being dependent and desperate and desirous of god right that's how we guard the deposit that's how we guard ourselves that's how we do this whole thing right this is how we have to do it if we're going to do it in a way that is healthy this is how we have to do it if we're going to uh, take this seriously when it comes to the preservation of the word as as a church right we have to because what we're going to need is the more let me say it differently the more we make much out of the preservation of God's word. And by that, I mean the objective truth and the subjective living of the truth. The the more we do that, that preserving thing, the more we're going to need it to preserve us because I guarantee you it's not going to get easy when you do that. It doesn't get easy for the individual and it doesn't get easy for a church in a community. The more a church seeks to live out what Christ has called the church to be, the more a church seeks to live out what the word of God entails, the more they're going to face challenge. In fact, as Paul goes into chapter 2 of his letter to Timothy here, he says, Timothy, I want you to to build up in, in spiritual things and I want you to tear down things that cause you to struggle with lust or challenge or whatever else. So build up and tear down. He says, here's why. I told you to guard the deposit. I told you also in chapter 1 to not be afraid. We don't have a spirit of fear, but a power of love and soundness of mind. I've told you all that in chapter 1, and I've told you in chapter 2 to build up your faith and tear down your vices because trouble's coming. Because the more you take those things seriously, the more you become aligned with what Christ wants you to be. And the more you do that and the more you live it out, the world around you, it'll tolerate it for a season. But then after a season, if it keeps seeing the truth and it runs to the darkness, because again, it doesn't like the light, it's going to move from tolerating you to beginning to attack you. Because you're revealing what is true. And so in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, he lays down this wonderful verse that everybody should stitch on a pillow. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Yay! Um, you go, wait a minute. We've been sitting there saying, hey, man, we're supposed to be guardians and sentinels of the truth. And if we do, we're protected and guarded and built up and strengthened. It sounds like if I do that, I just get my butt kicked. That's what this verse tells me. I just get my butt kicked, right? Read it again. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. In Smash Bible, for me, that's in yellow. That's a promise to claim. It's a promise, right? It doesn't say it could happen, it might happen. There's an outside chance that it could slip through. He says, no, this is what happens when you live truly godly. When you live in faith, in love, in Christ, by the Spirit, guarding the deposit, living it out because it's objectively true in a sinful world, broken culture, as a church, seeking to be a buttress and pillar of the truth. This is just what's going to happen. He says, man, we're going to be persecuted. He says, not only that, verse 13, while evil people and imposters are going to go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Yeah, we are at risk in the hands of God's opponents, but we have confidence in the hands of God. That's, That's what he's saying. We have confidence in the, hand of God, in the hands of God, but we, we do have risk in the hands of God's opponents. But this is why we have to re- really reinforce the values even of last week. Loyalty, longing, love, right? 
Loyalty to Christ. I serve Christ over money. Longing for Christ. I just want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Love of Christ. I do what he says because I love it. As we grow in those things, you know what? What this is saying here is, yeah, we're going to suffer. There's going to be some opposition. I don't mean suffer like we're all going to prison or we're all going to lose our heads. I, I don't think we're in a culture that's really wired for that. Suffering is just going to be, you know, people are going to look at you different. They're going to say different things about you. And you may not be invited to some things and you may be pushed out of other things. And you may not get a promotion. They're, they're, you know, who knows what can happen in all of that. But it's just reality. It says, you know what, all that's going to mean for me is that I'm going to move from being a, a, a good Christian to an increasingly godly Christian if I absorb that. What it means for those who oppose that is that he says they go from bad to worse. For us, as we live the truth, as we guard the deposit, as we're sentinels of the word by both protecting it and living it, we become more aware. The opposition, what it says here, is they become more deceived. And, and, and I see that. I, you know, I, I want to always be very clear that any time that you have for me on a Sunday morning like an assessment of culture. I, I, and I, I fear, there's been a couple of times in the last five years where I've, I've allowed my personal frustration to bleed out into my preaching. And I've, I've gone too far in what I've said about the surrounding world in a way that didn't sound like I ached for them in their brokenness. And so I, I confess and repent that there's been times where I've let, uh, frankly, my own sinful anger cloud a, a statement. So I, I want to be clear um, our battle isn't against people. We should learn to, to, to really get, get that out of the equation. Our battle isn't against people. Paul says it's not against flesh and blood. It's, it's a spiritual melees that we deal with. There's supernatural powers in play. And therefore, the lost world, even when it's cruel and foolish and, and outright, we, we see them do things that are just absolutely vile to the human condition, right? You turn on the news, you see things that are horrible. We still need to go, man, and the only hope is Jesus for that. The only hope, I mean, that's, what, that's what's needed. Jesus must intervene. We have to have that heart for the lost and heart for the broken. Even for those who persecute and grow from bad to worse, we still want to have this broken heart. This is, man, they need Jesus. I'm called to love my enemy. I'm called to get the gospel to those people. And even if it means I have to put my chin out there and then they give me a slap and I have to turn my cheek the other way, that's what I'm called to do because that's what they need. They need Jesus. Like, that's a hard thing still for me. But I have to keep that reference point as they go bad towards, I, ha- I still have to go, and I'm called to be a sentinel of the truth, which means I live out the word of God in the midst of that. That's, that, that's a hard thing. In light of that, though, I also acknowledge that I see deception becoming more deceiving. You just see it. You know, I listen to Richard Dawkins. He's like, there is no God, but maybe human life was brought here by aliens. I'm like, really? You know, like, deceived and being more deceived. Can't be a God, but there might be little green dudes that seeded us here like 4.5 billion years ago. All right. That doesn't take faith, Richard. Thank you. You know, like there's that. Or, or I, I, I see people who are offended by football players meeting in the middle of the field and praying, but then they're not offended by like the pornography epidemic. I'm like, you, you, don't you see that this is demeans women and it's got a lot of bad collateral damage? You're not concerned more about that than this? You're worried about people just kneeling on grass quietly? That's a, and so I, I look at all that, and I go, man, that's just deceived and being deceived and going from bad to worse and up is down and down is up and you're offended over nothing and not offended over important things and, and all that. And all the more, this reminds me why the church needs to be the church, why the word must be upheld, why we need to live it out, because that's what they need. They, they need the word. They need the gospel. They need the church to display that. And so, this is Timothy, man, you got to... You got to live this out, man. You got to you got to do this, right? Because it's going to get tough. It's going to get very tough. Because man, when people are blind, they also become deaf. And so Paul begins to drive the pile forward even more with Timothy. He says, "As for you, in verse fourteen of chapter three, he says, as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which were able to make you wise for salvation." Through faith in Christ Jesus. Hey, every parent, grandparent, and Sunday school teacher, here's your verse. That is great. From childhood, you were acquainted with the sacred scriptures that will make you wise for salvation. I mean, like he's just saying, hey, Timothy, when things get bad and they go worse, 
Go back to what you've known, not just in your gut, but from the scriptures. Why is the Bible the first thing in our backpack? Because when things go bad to worse, this is what we need to rely on. We don't rely on this or this. We rely on this. Because you knew this from a kid. When you were a little kid, you knew this to be true. You know what shaped you and what corrected you and what emboldened you. So continue in that. And he says that because the word is key. Verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now in our culture, we make a lot of big deal about God breathed out the scriptures and we get concerned about inspiration and there's an important debate for that. Uh, I believe that God fully inspired the word. But for Timothy's original audience, they would focus on profitable. Oh, the, the word of God is gain. The word of God is increase. It's revenue for life. Why is it revenue for life? First of all, teaching. Teaching means to clarify straight thinking. Then you have reproof. It confronts crooked thinking. Our thinking is key. Not just our feeling. In fact, our feelings are driving culture probably too much nowadays. We need to think more than we need to feel at times. Or we need to think first, then feel. So he says teaching clarifies a straight thought and reproof confronts crooked thinking. It also brings correction. It corrects improper behavior and an investment or instruction in righteousness. It calls us to proper conduct. That's why verse 17 says that scripture is sufficient for all of life. Can I tell you, can you imagine what life would be like for all of us if we always did what we knew the Bible told us to do in every decision we needed to make? I mean, just imagine that. Just that we took one day and we said, all day long, I'm going to do exactly what the Bible tells me to do with every decision I have to make. And by the way, I mean that with attitude, action, and affection. So the attitude I'm supposed to have, I'm going to take what the Bible says and have that attitude. The affections I'm supposed to have, I'm going to make the decision, have those affections, and I'm going to take the actions that it requires of me every time I have some decision I need to make throughout my day. So I wake up with my wife. And she says, uh, don't forget you said you would do this today. I'm like, oh, I totally forgot I got something else to do. I really need to do that. I'm like, well, I don't have time to do it. And I start to argue and everything else because now I'm being selfish and self-defensive. Imagine if right from the get-go I said, honey, I would love to do that. I will serve you because I said I would. And I'm sorry, I forgot. You know, I just, like that decision, how much that would shape my day. Right? Just that attitude. Right? And then Actions. Actions where I make conscious decisions. Somebody cuts me off on the road. I make a conscious decision in action after I process through a lot of attitude really fast. Right? Finger bad, finger bad, finger bad. Okay, that's what I... Right? So... Right? That's, that one still might get you shot, actually. But, um, you know, but, like, just... Just imagine if we made those conscious decisions. I'm just going to do what it tells me to do. Every day, because I believe the scriptures are sufficient for life. I mean, this is what he's telling Timothy in verse 17. They're sufficient for all the things you're going to face in life. If you just do what it says you're going to do well, you'll be proficient. You'll be prepared for every good work that comes your way. This is why he then says in chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is the judge of the living and the dead, by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, Timothy. This is what you want to do. Because the word is power, because the word transforms, because the word shapes, because the word can move a life in a way that is glorifying to God and prepares you for all things. Timothy, you got to make sure that everybody has the word in their heart and in their head and in their hand, so preach it. Say it loud, say it proud, say it bold, make much of it. Preach the word. It says, be ready, which literally means linger by it. Have it right at your disposal. Be ready, right? It says, be ready in season and out of season. There's going to be times when people dig it. There's going to be times when people hate it. There's going to be times where they go, oh, good, good, good message, pastor. Other times they're going to be like, that was terrible. We're never coming back. When they like it or hate it, want it or reject it, preach it. It says, reprove by appealing to their reason or rebuke by confronting their conscience or exhort by challenging their will. That's really what all those words are related to. But notice what he says. He notice, notice he says that there's a tone and a technique. He says, but with complete patience and teaching. Don't rant, rail, get angry, flail, whatever else. He says you have to be patient. 
and you just have to keep reminding. It's not a jackhammer thing. It's really a, a long, long marathon. So he says, fulfill the task and the tone, for the time is coming, verse 3, when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and they will wander into myths. And here's a painful truth. Uh, We're all susceptible to this. Every one of us, myself included, we sit under teachers for hours every week. We sit under online teachers and TV teachers and radio teachers and media teachers and marketing teachers and just teacher teachers and, you know, neighbor teachers. And we have a lot of teachers, most of which those teachers are not saying, how do we make much of God's word? We're all susceptible to it. And, and what I've found in, in my own life even is that there's no rest in, in being aware of this. So I, I was thinking about how to illustrate that this week. Does anybody remember the old uh, little handheld dexterity toys? I think we have a picture of one of them where you had to get the little marble in the hole, right? And it, you're always like, oh, I can never do it. I get like three and I can't get the fourth and everything. That's how this feels. I, I, I think there's always this, this pendulum kind of effect that we're dealing with as far as how we can get pulled into various passions, that stray us from the truth. And so, for example, let's bring up this next slide here really quick. Um, This is where we're supposed to be as Christians. Grace-laced righteousness. Where righteousness is driven by the grace, right? Uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 15 talks about this, right? That we're not just supposed to be inherently in our own strength righteous. It's a grace-laced righteousness. But our temptation is to go to or fro. So in the next slide, what we're sometimes apt to do is to have grace, but without righteousness, right? So this is where we become very kind of liberal in our way of looking at world, very libertine in the way of doing things. We're all about being kind, compassionate, gracious, merciful, and we almost kind of downplay righteousness, right? And, and, and that's a place it can go. And, and Timothy was dealing with that in his church sometimes, right? But then there's the other side of the equation, which is righteousness without grace, Right? Where now it's just uh, the rules and everything else, and everybody else is an idiot, and we're right, and, and there's just this kind of self-righteousness. One side is unrighteousness, and the other side is self-righteousness, and both of those are destructive and demonic. So in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, here's the doctrines of demons you're dealing with, Timothy. Nobody wants to marry because it leads to sex. That's bad. Sex and marriage is bad. Certain foods are bad. Certain other systems are bad. Like, everything was so legalistic, it was a righteousness without grace. And that was the doctrine of demons, just as bad as the other side. But where we need to get is in this next slide, is there. And and it's always like this. We're always, I find myself like that all the time. You know, it's like some days I wake up and I'm like, you know, oh, more more grace, less righteousness. No, 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 more righteousness, less righteousness. It's always like this, right? Don't you feel like that sometimes? You know, it's like, you know, freedom in Christ, no, rules in Christ, freedom in Christ, rules in Christ. You know, it's just, That's the struggle. And all the more then why Paul tells Timothy, man, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. So you have to teach it so they learn to keep the balance. And there's no rest in that. Every day is, God, help me to have grace-laced righteousness. To be a preacher of the word. To be a protector of the word. To be a doer of the word. To be a connoisseur of the word. Just help me to do that the power of your servant. And again, that's hard. It's hard. What it means is that every day, every day we're, we're, we're going to this and going to that. And every week as a church that we're making much of his word so that his word imprints itself much on us. In Hebrews, it says that his word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it just cuts into us. It just pierces differently. It moves in us different. And some of us may even listen to all of this and say, man, I don't don't even know. This this is overwhelming. How do I do all of this? What I love about Hebrews chapter 4 is it says that we have a high priest who sympathizes with our weaknesses. Right? We have a high priest who uh, understands our struggle. The same high priest who gives the word is the high priest who steps into our life to give us courage and calm and conviction to live out the word, to protect the word, to guard the word, to do the word. That's what he does. And so what we need 
in the midst of all of that is the people of the word who then go to Jesus, who is the author of the word, and say, Jesus, work out this word in me. I come to Christ to come to his word, to come more to Christ, to come more to his word, to come more to Christ, to come more to his word, to come more to Christ, to come more to his word. That, that, that's, that's just a cycle. It's a cycle that continues to go on. For Jesus is the word. And so I come to him to go to his word, to come to him more. I close with Psalm 19. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. If you have a downtrodden soul, man, I know sometimes I'll go to bed and I'll be a little discouraged. I take my phone and I turn on my Bible app and I just listen to the Psalms. I'll probably have brain cancer by the time I'm 55 because this thing sits like right here so I don't wake up Ellen. But I just listen to the Psalms. Why? Because the law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It, it makes, makes wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right and it rejoices the heart. The commandments of the Lord are pure and they enlighten the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean and endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold. Yes, much fine gold. Sweeter than the honey dripping from the honeycomb. And moreover by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them. There is great reward. Let's pray together. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for a church that loves your word. I thank you that you've laid on our heart to be a sentinel of your word. And I pray that we are always faithful to that. That at the end of any morning, if anything is said, it would be, we heard a lot of your word. A lot of your word. And we preach that, share that, teach that, make much of that in faith, knowing that your word is power, knowing that as Hebrews 4.12 says, your word is living and active. It is alive in us to shape us, to challenge us, to confront us, to draw us into repentance, to draw us into optimism, to draw us into faith, to draw us into strength, to draw us into rest in you. I pray that we will trust your word to do what it does and we will protect your word because it does so much. We do this in your name and for your glory. Amen.